head out to Children's Church. So we are looking at the faith supplements, the things that we are supposed to add to our faith in order to increase it, whereas up to this point, God has done what needed to be done in us. Now it is uh, how we now respond, how we react, and what we add to what he is doing in us. Last week, we spoke about the topic of virtue, and we spoke about how virtue and valor uh, are the basically, in essence, the same thing. They are a conformity to righteousness, to the right way of living, the courage to act based on that standard, and then doing so, acting in uh, worthiness and with excellence. That is what uh, valor and virtue is. Um, This week, we're heading to the second one, so we'll go back to 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11, and get that one. Let's go. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this next week, we're going to be looking at the topic of knowledge. Um, originally, this was going to be a sermon that was going to be uh, two things, knowledge and self-control, but as it as has been happening this year, I got writing and ended up uh, with a full sermon out of knowledge, so we're going to stick with this one. Now, you may ask yourself, now, why in the world do we add to faith knowledge? You would think we would add to knowledge faith, that we know the truth, and then we can be more faithful to that truth. Well, what, as we've kind of laid out, faith is kind of, it's not dependent upon uh, a proper understanding. So when we talked about faith, Jesus walked along, came across Matthew and Levi, uh, Matthew who is also called Levi, and he said to him, follow me. He didn't give him any information. He didn't give him anything to believe in. He just placed a call. Uh, Levi, uh, Matthew stood up and walked. We talked about how faith is coming alongside. It's an alignment. It's a coming together and becoming one. So if that faith is coming alongside of Jesus, that doesn't necessarily require any knowledge. So we, we have this faith, we have this uh, uh, allegiance, this alliance to Jesus. We're going to follow him, we're going to learn from him. We add to that this desire to be righteous, to act rightly, to do what we know is the proper way of living. Well, once we have that desire, so once we come alongside of Jesus, we say, this is the, this is the path, this is the person I'm going to follow. And I want it. I I want to go after it with all I have. Now, all of a sudden, once you have that desire, then you need the knowledge. Because what use is the knowledge if there is not a desire and a hunger to put it into practice? So once you have that virtue, you have that desire, that hunger to do what is right and to do it excellently, to be like Jesus, hungering and thirsting for him, then is when knowledge becomes useful. And I think that's why in Peter he says, you now add knowledge to virtue. You add knowledge to the desire to be righteous. And that's what we're looking at this morning. 
there are. Most of us have probably heard the lesson that usually comes from C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the four loves. That What we use the word love in the English language, there were four words for it in the Greek language. Well, the same is actually true of the concept of knowledge. Though we only have one word for knowledge, the Greek had four words for knowledge. And when we are growing in knowledge of who God is and what it means to be like Christ, well, then I think it's going to be extremely important that we also have those same four that we are growing in because When the word knowledge is used in the scriptures, all four of these are in there. We are called to four different ways by which we grow in knowledge of who God is and who Christ is. And so we're going to look at those four today. The first one, the first Greek word is oida. You see that in your little, uh, on the the, uh, sermon notes sheet, oida. Oida means awareness. It means that you are aware of something. Uh, it is one of those moments when, when someone tells you something and it's obvious. So if someone tells you, hey, uh, you, you're looking outside, you see the rain. Someone says, I think you're going to need an umbrella. It's raining outside. Yeah, oida. Duh. Okay? Oida is things that can be perceived and seen. They are things that words don't have to be spoken. There is just an awareness of their reality, of the way it is. So I'm gone all day. Uh, The wife stays home. Um, I didn't take out the trash. I didn't do any of the chores that I promised to do for her. I come home. I open up the door, and I'm greeted with a look. We all know that look, that dangerous look. That you better tread carefully look. So I walk in and I see that look. And I do the stupid thing as a man. I say, what are you upset about? Or, or, or I say, what's wrong? And she looks at me and she says, I'm upset with you. Oida. <laughs> That's obvious. Okay? Don't say that, man. It's not going to work out well. But oida is, you didn't have to tell me I was aware that that was the situation. Oida. It's just, it's, it's simply an awareness, a, a knowledge that doesn't even have to be spoken. It's obvious. So in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, Paul uses this in the concept of knowledge. He says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of, my, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospels, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So when Paul here, he says, I know whom I have trusted. I know whom I have believed. This isn't a logical knowledge. It is oida. Paul is saying, I am aware. I am living in awareness of the one in whom I have trusted, and that gives me the confidence to continue. Paul there is saying that there is a knowledge of the, there's an awareness of the presence of God around us that you and I are, he is in prison. 
Consider for a moment what a miserable, horrible existence, what a lonely existence that is to be isolated, set apart, to be in miserable conditions, a dank, dark dungeon. Wherever he is, he doesn't want to be there. He's all alone. He feels isolated. And he says the only thing that gives him confidence is his awareness that the one he loves is with him. He says, in the midst of all this, I know whom I have believed. I am aware of him. He's not abandoned me. He's not left me. He is around me and with me. See, you and I need to realize that we can walk with an awareness of Jesus and his presence. We can walk with an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And hopefully we can get to that place. Because life is a lot better when we actually walk in his presence and allow his presence to inundate us. The reality is he's around us all the time, right? He is always with us. He never forsakes us. He never leaves us. He never abandons us. It doesn't happen. He is always there. The only difference is whether or not we are aware of his presence or not. So when I was a kid, and I started driving and going out on my own, meeting friends, doing things, my mom became, she became aware, avoided, that uh, she was no longer able to control the environment I was in, where I was going or what I was doing that she was losing that motherly influence. And so I can remember that what she would tell me is before I went out, she would say, remember that God is with you and God can see you. Little emotional manipulation, but it works. The concept there is just because no one sees you, God sees you in the closet. He sees you in the dark places, in the light places. He sees you in public. He sees you when you are alone. God is aware of you. You know, in in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters, he's uh, speaking to seven churches, and Jesus speaks. And to each of them, he says, he says, oida, a lot. He says, I know. I know your deeds. I know your reputation. I know what you've I know what you've done. I know who you are, and I know what you believe. All this is I'm aware. He's telling them, look, I am observant. God is aware of us at all times, and he is asking us to be live in awareness of him. So I try, when I'm in the car, to pray with my eyes open, by the way. I try to pray. I will sing in the car. Why? To, to remind myself that in all moments, I am in his presence. And you know what? I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a a German uh, minister, who said, he said, as the presence of God gets smaller, the power of sin gets bigger. Meaning that the the less aware we become that he's, he's right here with us, the greater the likelihood that we will give into temptation. So we are to grow in our knowledge, our oida of God, in our awareness of him, that he is around us because it gives us the strength and the confidence to stand against sin. He's with us. 
The second one is really interesting because it's not translated knowledge at all in your Bible, which is funny, but it's not. It's actually a knowledge word, and it's doxa. Doxa. I just like saying it because it just sounds it just sounds cool. Doxa is a belief, opinion based on value. So. Most of us, most of our opinions, so there's a couple of levels of this. Uh, most of us, our opinions uh, of, of God and things, are, most of our understanding and our beliefs are doxa. That's, that's, that's where most of our knowledge is. Someone has taught this to me. Someone has shared this to me. I value their opinion. I value what they've said. I value it. And so uh, I come to believe it. I come to accept it. And I come to know it. But it is based on what I value. So doxa, normally, it, it's very weird because it gets translated most of the time in the scriptures uh, as praise. It gets translated as glory. It gets translated as honor at times. It gets, it gets portrayed different ways in different places. But the imagery here is doxa is whatever you value. It, that's what you believe in. It's what you trust. It's what you know to be true. So, for instance, um, I doxa my family. I know the value of my family. I value my family differently than people who do not know them. I do not. I value my family differently than people who may just kind of know them. I value them. I know them. I know their worth. I know their value. I know their importance. I know their possibilities. When no one else knows it, I know it. Because I'm with them. I'm around them. I see more of of, of them than anyone else sees of them. I know their strengths and I know their weaknesses. I doxa my family. You doxa your family. It's the things that you know to be true because you value them. That's what doxa is. So now, interesting. We have a song, right? There's the old hymn, doxology. It comes out of doxa. Dox, praise, logi, word. It's a word of praise. But here I want you to understand that what, it, what we do in... So I had a friend... Kind of rambling here. I had a I had a I had a friend one time that I was uh, he was a non-believer who ended up becoming a Christian, and he said, "You know what? It wasn't hard for me uh, to come into a church or into a body, and to uh, it wasn't hard to understand why you read the Bible." He goes, "I got that. I sat down. And I was able to read the Bible with you, and I'm learning things about it. That made sense. There's a God. You want to know about that God because you want to make that God happy, or you want to do whatever you're supposed to do. That makes sense." They say, "He said, you know what? Prayer. I understand prayer." He goes, "Prayer makes sense to me because I, you know, I come into a, a place and these people are professing that there is a God who is their Father who is listening to them. It would make sense that you would talk to Him." He goes, "I understand that about church." He said, "You know what I don't understand about church?" He said, "Singing." What are you doing? How weird is that? And I never thought about that until he pointed out that someone who has never grown up in the church, where in life do they ever get together with people and just randomly burst into song? It's like some sort of weird musical when they come into the place. What is happening here? What is happening? We call it worship. We call it praise. But what is it? It's doxa. 
we, what are we doing when we, when, when we sing? We, we are proclaiming the value of who Jesus is. Worship is not about feelings. Feelings are involved, but it's not about how I feel. Worship is not about, uh, uh, it's not about anything. I mean, all of the different things that we make worship about. Worship is sharing and proclaiming in unison the knowledge of the value of our God. We stand up and we proclaim, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Why do we, why do we say those words? Because God needs to be reminded that we're, we need to praise him? No, because we need to shout out together that our God is worthy of it, that we know it to be true, we believe it. And so we gather together and the songs that we sing proclaim his value. And if our worship is not doing that, it is not doing what it's supposed to do, which is doxa. So do you know the value of God? Are you growing in that, in that knowledge and understanding? Because the more you realize what he has done for you, the more you realize his power, his majesty, the more you realize his love, the greater your surrender is. I have never grown in knowledge of who God is and felt better about myself. Never done it. I'm just put in awe of who he is. In John 17, 1, it says this, when Jesus, this is at the end of his life, it says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify, the, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The word here is doxa. Jesus looks up into heaven and he cries out to the Father and he says this, Father, reveal the knowledge of my worth. Teach them my worth so that they will understand your worth. They will come to know who you are. What is Jesus saying? Very simply this. Jesus was getting, he was heading to a cross, and he knew that the time was at hand. He was heading to a cross, and he was going to die. And he wanted, he said, Father, the tower has come. Glorify me. Show them how valuable I am. What does he mean? What he means by that is this, is that he is sinless, he is holy, he does not deserve to die, he is nothing but the full and complete demonstration of God's love. And even though he is sinless and we put him to death, our God saves us using that death. We have to understand his sinlessness to understand the salvation that we have been given. So Jesus says, show them how precious I am to you. 
so that they will understand how precious you are, that you were willing to give your sinless son to die as a sin offering. Do you value him? Do you understand his value and his worth? It affects, it affects how we live and how we act. So Jesus tells the parable of the, of the man who, who goes and he, he finds in a field a treasure, but he doesn't own the field. And he's not, going to be, he's not going to be a thief. He's not going to steal the treasure. So what he does is he rehides the treasure back where he found it, covers it up, and he goes to that owner. And he goes to the owner of that field, and he doesn't tell him. He doesn't tell him about the value that he has found. And he buys the field. He buys the field, he sells what he has, buys the field, and now he not only has the field, but he also has the treasure that is contained within. That's doxa. He was willing to sell what he had in order to gain what he had found. That is who we are as Christians, is that we understand who God is and his value, that we are willing to leave everything else behind in order to come alongside of him. The more you value him, the more like him you will become. The third one is episteme, and that's logical comprehension. That's, I get it. There are, episteme are the aha moments. Do you remember growing up and learning math? As a kid, we understand math. We oida math, right? We perceive it. We know that it exists. Because a little kid, if you, have, if you have two kids and you give one kid one cookie, the other kid two cookies, this one knows something, something bad just happened. You gave him two cookies. So I only have one. See, they're aware of math. They can't do algebra. They, can't put, they couldn't do the formulas. But they, they have a grasp of what math is because, hey, I need another cookie. That's oida. Then we go to doxa, which is, which is you explain to a kid, 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and, and they learn the rules, but they don't necessarily get it. They can follow the rules, they can do the math, but they really don't understand it. Then you get to the level of episteme, which is after doing it a while, the kid wakes up and goes, oh my goodness, now I get it. Ah, here's why it works. Here's why it is the way it is. Once you reach that point, math becomes easier, doesn't it? Once you have that aha moment, that's what episteme is. Episteme is, it's no longer belief, it's no longer opinion based on what you value, it's based on the evidence that has come to you and you now understand it. And actually, most of us probably never get to episteme, but that's what we're doing in our Bible studies, in our Wednesday night studies, that's what I'm doing when I'm up here and I'm preaching and taking you through the scriptures and helping you try to understand them. What we do in all of our uh, uh, personal Bible study, you are trying to grow in a knowledge of who he is. You are trying to understand him. You are trying to understand his laws, his rules. Why does he want me to forgive? See, it's one thing to, to, to doxa forgiveness, which means I understand that he told me to do it, and I value forgiveness, but I don't know why I'm doing it. Episteme is where I now understand. I have looked, I have seen the evidence, and I understand why he wants me to forgive. I understand the benefit of it. It benefits others. It benefits me. Here's what forgiveness does. It's that next step. And we are supposed to grow in our evidentiary knowledge of him, our logical understanding of him. 
so that we can speak the truth that he shared with us so that other people may hear it. In Mark 14, 68, this is uh, after Jesus has been arrested and, and he's, he's being carted around and you have these people around a fire and they look at Peter and they say to Peter, they say, you were with him, weren't you? Here's what Peter says. But he denied it, saying, neither do I know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway um, and the rooster crowed. So this was the third time he denied Jesus. Leave this up here. So right there at the beginning, he says, I neither know. That's oida. He says, uh, I'm not aware of what you're talking about. And then he says, nor do I understand, which is episteme. Nor do I have any sort of understanding or rational grasp of what it is you're saying. I mean, he's at, he, he is literally going and, and acting like a madman. I'm not even, not only am I not aware of it, I like can't even rationally comprehend what you're saying right now, so I'm going to leave. And he leaves. And so right there are, are both of the knowledges that are put together um, as, he, as he is uh, dealing with it. So you and I, we need to grow in this uh, episteme, this knowledge. This is what most of us think of when we talk about we're supposed to grow in knowledge of Jesus. We think I'm supposed to grow in my understanding of who he is and my understanding of his teachings and my understanding of uh, what it means to be a Christian. And that is accurate. That is true. We're supposed to grow in oida. We're supposed to grow in um, doxa. We're supposed to grow in episteme. But... In the New Testament, when he calls us to knowledge, when he calls us to know God, to know Christ, it is almost always this word, and that is gnosis. Gnosis is to understand through experience. There was a third century and on group called the Gnostics. We're not talking about them. Those are people who took this and said, and said uh, uh, experiential knowledge is more. And there are people today that still do that. They go, they go well, God told me. I'm, that's fine. But if it goes against the scriptures, I'm not interested in it. See, Gnosis is kind of the end. It's kind of the end. We start with an awareness of who God is, right? Then we move into an understanding his worth and value. Then we move into logically understanding him. And then we are supposed to arrive at this last stage, which is an experiential knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. And each one is based on the one that came before it, each of these layers of knowledge. So if I say, I, God's given me some new knowledge that disagrees with the Bible, that's problematic. No, no, he didn't. So gnosis is what we are called to, a relationship with him, to know him by experience, by interaction, not just some intellectual endeavor. We don't just learn about him, we learn him who he is by being around him. So, uh, uh, as, a, as an example, uh, in Acts 19, there are the Jewish exorcists who are going around. They've seen uh, Paul and others are casting out demons, and they're trying to do it. Here's what happened. It says uh, they, ca- they tried to cast him out, but the evil spirit answered him, and he said this. He said, Jesus I know, Paul I know or recognize, but who are you? Let me walk you through this. So here he says, Jesus, I gnosis. I have experience with him. I, this, uh, he knows Je- Probably that spirit knew Jesus better. Than, what he's saying is, I, know, I actually know Jesus. You guys don't even know who he is. You, you haven't even met him. 
I know that. And he says, and Paul, Paul, I episteme, meaning uh, uh, I've seen the evidence of Paul. I've seen what Paul can do, though I, I have not personally experienced Paul. Do you see how it's playing out here? Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? He's looking and saying, I don't even know who you guys are. We have not, I don't even oida you. I'm not even aware of who you are. Who are you? And more importantly, who do you think you are? That you're, that you're going to come, come to me like that. So then the spirit beats them, strips them, and chases them out naked and bloody. In the New Testament, the call to know Christ is gnosis. Let's look at one other passage about this. Philippians 3, 8 to 10. Paul says, in, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So, so here's the doxa, right? I, I know his worth. I, have, I know his value. And I've left everything behind for him because of that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, gnosis, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. He says, I've already abandoned everything, right? I've doxed it. It's gone. He is the most important, the most valuable thing that I have. And because of that, I find myself now wanting to know him, gnosis him, to know him so much that I even know his sufferings. I'm willing to die as he died in order to know what he went through. Paul is at the point that we're supposed to be at where he hungers for experience. He wants to know Christ so intimately, so powerfully that he is willing to face the experiences of suffering and death in order to attain it. He will do whatever it takes to get to that level of intimacy with Christ. I'm afraid that most in the church, episteme is kind of the top It's where we kind of max out. It's kind of where we stop. That somehow, if we know enough about him, that that's what matters. But guys, God is looking for gnosis. That's why he says, taste that the Lord is good. Come, come and, he looks at Thomas, he says, come. Come and see and touch We're supposed to hunger and thirst for all of these words, hungers and thirst for righteousness. The smelling, the aroma of Christ, all of those, those are experiential words that come from interaction with our Savior. Because what does the knowledge of him mean if we don't ever actually experience who he is? In Matthew 7, I'll leave, I'll leave you to look at this later. Jesus is talking about the end. He separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. The thing that most people don't pay much attention to 
is that among the unrighteous that are condemned are those who claim the name of Jesus and actually performed miracles in his name. It's right there. When they realize that they are condemned, they look at God, they look at Christ and they say at the end, they look at Christ and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did we not cast out demons? Are you not oida? Are you not aware, Christ, that we have done these things? Do you not doxa us? Do you not value the fact that we cast out demons in your name? That we prophesied in your name? Do you not episteme us? Do you not see the evidence that we knew you, that we cast out demons in your name? Do you see what I'm saying? They go through and they're basically, when they say, we've done these things in your name, we've done it, look. And Jesus' response is this. Depart, for I do not gnosis you. I have never experienced you. We have no relationship. All of the grand things you did in his name, even there, there's evidence that you did it. We have nothing between us. There's nothing there. To me, that's a warning from Christ, is that we are supposed to be adding to our faith all of these knowledge. Seeking to know him on a real, intimate, experiential, and relationship level. Not that that is the end of it, or that the other things don't matter, but that that is a necessary knowledge, as we see there. So your knowledge, I want to encourage you today, grow in awareness. Grow in how much you value him. Grow in in, um, uh, your conviction, the knowledge, the understanding of what truth is, because that's what grounds us and holds us. But also experience him. Because that's what changes us. It's the encounters with Jesus that gives us the power and the strength to do what we've been called to do. So add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation. If there's any way that we can help you, we can minister to you, we can speak a word of encouragement over you this morning, please let us do so while we sing.